You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban, and my co-host today. I'm, you know, blessed with a uh, abundance of riches. Yeah, I'm joined by uh, Imam Safir Khan and Imam Rana uh, Rahman. So uh, we've got. It's pretty close in here. We are COVID friendly. <laughs> so we have we have kind of like done all that kind of stuff today. So how's everyone feeling? Yeah, um, thank you for the introduction and um, and thank you for making me feel comfortable as well. Mm. So that's the general answer mm. to your question mm. that you know the we introduction. Haven't started, right? uh, wait, we wait, haven't wait. started, <laughs> but the by the way, you made me feel comfortable yeah. straight away. It's okay. quite quite nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have a new voice, uh, a new presenter yes. in, and uh, you know, Rana Rahman. You know, we we were class fellows as well oh, okay. in in Jamia uh, Ahmadiyya in the <coughs> Institute of Modern Languages and Theology mm-hmm. for seven years. So we know each other very well, and right. um, yeah, I think you'd be a great addition to mm-hmm. to. So you to are our alumni. Alumni, yes. yes um, in a sense, well, actually, yes, in the definition of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's been quite a long time. So, yeah, thank you for uh, and r- really nice to hear that word again, alumni. So yeah. it brings yeah, back it lots, lots yeah, of exactly, memories exactly. of a, a very nice place. Well, um, as is usual, we're kind of like uh, either we concentrate the full two hours on one topic, or it's split amongst two topics. So today. We've got. Uh, we're going to be talking about blood diamonds or conflict diamonds, as some people know it, uh, in general parlance, and that will be uh, our first hour's conversation. And we'll be looking into obviously the issues surrounding conflict diamonds, because obviously um, you know that expression is a girl's best friend, and you know that one, I suppose, piece of jewellery. You look at it and you think, oh, you know, you might think it's just on a ring, on a necklace, on earrings. But actually, where is the history of that? Mm. Has that come from? I mean, how has that got uh, from the ground up all the way across the seas to you know your your beloved's finger um, or ears or, or neck or whatever? And so we'll be looking at the actually at the process mm. um, and like I said, the issues uh, regarding uh, these conflict diamonds. And that will be in the first hour. And in the second hour, also another very very. Um, I suppose, uh, yeah, very kind of sensitive topic, the sensitive topic of mental health. Now, on this aspect of mental health, I suppose, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about it, but we're going to actually look at, uh, in today's program, whether it's nature or nurture. Mm. You know, what are the, you know, (coughs) is it a genetic disposition that one might have, which causes them to be more prone to mental health issues, or... Uh, you know, which factor is the, I suppose, you know, the dominant factor, yeah. whether it's nature or nurture? Yeah. I, I think that's the the second hour topic as well is, is a very pertinent one because mm-hmm. uh, after the pandemic and after the, mm-hmm. you know, the issues that the world has gone through, you know, mental health uh, issues are on the increase mm-hmm. um, statistically as well. And we've covered it before as well, mm-hmm. how more and more people are focusing on it. Um, and the most important thing, of course, is uh, that people are aware of it. And mm-hmm. that's why we discuss it here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think that's the thing, Sophia, <coughs> that, you know, it's one of those, it's always like a, I, I suppose it's better nowadays. Mm. But, um, you know, I'm a bit older than you, slightly, I slightly. Say, slightly <laughs> older than you. But in, uh, say, for instance, in my teens, it's still a bit of a taboo subject. Yeah? It's yeah. something that you wouldn't 
kind of like approach or mm. it wouldn't be a topic that you just you know just pick off the top of your head and talk about in exactly. general yeah. right mm. uh, for want of maybe it's a bit of kind of like an embarrassing maybe mm. subject to talk about mm. um, but nowadays I think there is that awareness yeah um, you know someone who's had a friend yeah. who them they themselves or has a family member who has suffered from mental uh, mental health issue. Mm. It's not. I mean, that's the thing. You know, you can people can be walking around. You can be walking around your supermarket. Yeah. And you know, people look physically the same. You know, you see people, your neighbours, whatever. But you just can't tell what's underneath the surface mm. of you know whether they are suffering from mental health issues. So um, that's something for the second hour. But before that, let's jump straight into the first topic of blood diamonds. Now. Uh, blood diamonds or conflict diamonds are also known, uh, well, I've used both the terminologies, yeah. So these diamonds that are mined and sold in order to actually finance armed conflict or other forms of violence. Now, these diamonds are often used to fund civil wars and insurgencies in countries with a history of diamond production. Now, this is particularly in Africa and in within Africa is Central and Western Africa. Uh, the sale of conflict diamonds has been linked to serious human rights abuses, uh, of which <coughs> include forced labour, child uh, child labour, human rights violations. Mm. Now, in order to address the problem of conflict diamonds, the international community has established a number of measures, uh, of which is the Kimberley process. Now, this is a certifi certification, I should say, system that allows, or sorry, aims to ensure that diamonds are not used to finance conflict. Um, I do remember this, mm. this film in yeah. particular, 2006, the uh, mm. Leonardo DiCaprio film of Blood Diamonds. And, uh, and you know, we're talking back, you know, in 2006. Yeah. And this is where uh, I suppose Hollywood touched upon this issue and brought it to the fore. And a lot of us then actually understood. I mean, I, I can pretty much say hand on heart that until I saw that film, I didn't realize that there was this issue with diamonds. Yeah, same. I mean, yeah. pretty much the same. And I think we're going to look at um, when the, the first organization that actually brought um, this whole issue of uh, conflict and blood diamonds to the world's attention mm -hmm. was in 1998. So that's not really far, uh, you know, mm -hmm. back in time. Yeah. So it shows that for a long time I'm trying to work yeah. it out 24 years more, more in regards to the, um, the the movie itself now that, mm. that this is all content before us um, mm. considering the fact that they had to bring an A-star yeah. actor like Leonardo DiCaprio mm. to yeah. actually make it you know bring the impact out of it um, you know this is also a, a discussion about whether this was a you know if you didn't have a star of this calibre mm -hmm. um, would this have actually you know reached the you know yeah. the global reach of the yeah. uh, the entire yeah. world. So yeah. Um, yeah, so that has actually uh, considering the star power of uh, DiCaprio. You mm. know that's brought a, lo a lot of awareness into mm. the entire world. Mm. And and if you think about it, it's you know twenty four years ago, right? And so that you know having this Hollywood A lister uh, in Leonardo bring it to the fore. I, I mean, okay, sometimes you might say you know um, the end justifies the means, and you know. <coughs> I think Sophia said, you know, the, the first organization which started bringing news regarding blood diamonds and conflict diamonds was back in 98. So even then, there's a, there's, there's a bit of a gap of like eight of years, there, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, I'm pretty sure there might issues. be some other movies also or, you know, programs that actually highlight it. But as, you know, you, you both have said that this, you know, this really brought to 
to the you know masses that mm. this is what's what's going on and you see i mean w- i had a chance to 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 visit sierra leone mm-hmm. uh, which was one of the countries that really suffered from conflict <laughs> uh, as a result of diamonds and mining and mm-hmm. literally when you're traveling on the roads through villages you'll see like diamond uh, mines Mm-hmm. everywhere there's like advertisement of or like you know not really advertisement but paintings of of you know um, the the native uh, Sierra Leoneans but just Africans. okay that's that's great yeah because like give, give give our listeners yeah. out there a, a, a feel for it because in, is it this like massive corporations out there so that you see these factories mm. which are mechanized or is it more kind of your artisanal like piecemeal little guys who've got a, like a you know literally you know if i if i look back okay it's not in my recent yeah. history but if you think back to how uh, they used to pan gold right in the in the west yeah which was literally going to a lake mm. digging up a load yeah. of mud and panning it out like that which <coughs> which was it then in sierra leone okay so my observation right and i mm-hmm. could be could be wrong here but i think what i from what i saw that the general public they they do not have their own farms there they do not have their own people are there's real poverty uh, in in Sierra mm-hmm. Leone and I'm pretty sure in other west african countries as well and um they're mainly looking for work and they are being used in these um diamond mines um and and now obviously other minerals as well um and as far as i know or as far as i've heard is that you know these uh, mines and these vast uh, areas of uh, land which is being used for for mining is owned by external uh, organizations mm-hmm. uh, you know companies mm. and i think uh, that buy land yeah exactly so i think um, your point and uh, we're going to actually delve further into that but we're actually joined by our first guest of the day lisa rosen uh, sorry let me start again lisa rosen so lisa is the uh, general manager for uh, let me just see sorry Apologies here, kind of like getting old in my time. So Lisa Rosen is the company manager of the International Gem Society. Assalamualaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, Lisa. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I know it's very, very short notice, and thank you very much for joining us. So we're talking about conflict diamonds, and we've just, uh, I suppose, you know, in, our in, uh, in you know, initial talk, just scratched the surface of it. But, you know, you work for an organization now, can you tell us a little bit about International Gem Society and your vision in keeping it uh, a cost-effective resource for others to actually use globally? Yes. So the International Gem Society was founded by a man named Donald Clark, who was a well-known gemologist who practiced in the trade for over three decades. So his mission and vision was to make gemology accessible and affordable for everybody. Um, And so when my husband and I took over IGS from Donald Clark after he retired, we Mm -hmm. promised him that we would continue his mission. And so we do that by offering e-learning. So everything we do is online uh, through our website. We don't offer any in-person classes. Um, Our entire reference library is online. Our curriculum is online. We offer links to buy tools. Um, so the student can really um, engage in self-study and go at their own pace. Um, the reason why we can keep this so cost-effective is because gemological information doesn't really change, and so we have probably the most robust uh, website for gemology 
on the web. Um, and so it, it allows us, because it doesn't change, we don't have to constantly update it. Um, and so it allows us to keep costs low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, with regards to, uh, you know, diamonds uh, specifically, I mean, there's so many other minerals as well that are extracted and uh, of, of great value as well. Um, but is it the case that diamonds are still uh, the most valuable of, of all the other gems? Or, or are we looking at something uh, changing now? Well, I, I don't know that they're the most valuable. Actually, diamonds are, are quite common. Um, I would say that they're still probably the most popular. Um, diamonds are the product of a very successful marketing campaign by De Beers in the 1930s which convinced people that they needed to propose with a diamond ring and they needed to spend three months of their salary on a ring. Wow, three months. Um, it's probably one of the most... Yeah, Pretty well paid. Yeah, it's probably, <laughs> one of the most, yeah, probably one of the most successful marketing campaigns in history. Um, but I will say that diamonds remain popular because I think their sparkle is so captivating, right? The way the diamond captures or I should say a well-cut diamond, captures and reflects light is, is really just so beautiful. Mm. Um, it's also a great jewelry stone because it's so durable, right? Its most hardness is 10. Um, so you can wear a diamond every day, and it's, it's pretty hard to damage it. Mm. So I think all of those things combined have really um, allowed diamonds to maintain their popularity over colored gemstones. Mm. So actually, Lisa, you were like saying, you know, so what is, in your opinion, the most precious gemstone then? Well, you know, I think uh, some of this comes down to personal preference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are a lot of beautiful colored gemstones mm, like that sapphires. are a lot rarer than a diamond. So, yeah, so um, cashmere sapphires, very mm-hmm. rare. The cashmere mine is closed. Um, those diamonds are incredibly hard to find and very, very expensive when you do find them. Um, Pariah tourmaline are now quite popular. Um, Spinel, a gemstone that's kind of like sapphire, is increasing in popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, it really just depends on what color you want. Um, but there are quite a number of colored gemstones that are far rarer than a diamond. Mm. Um, of course, diamonds in large sizes are, are obviously rare and valuable. And you're also seeing an increase in fancy colored gemstones. Those mm-hmm. are increasing in popularity. Mm-hmm. And the natural fancy colored gem, uh, sorry, the natural fancy colored diamonds are quite rare and, and quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Hi, Lisa. So um, I, I'm the third voice now, and I'm asking you the third question <laughs> in regards to this. Uh, what, are, what are you, in your views, how have the NGOs helped raise awareness around the conflict diamonds? So I actually think the Leonardo DiCaprio movie Blood Diamond was really the impetus behind bringing the term Blood Diamond into mm-hmm. the mainstream discussion. Um, I think that movie did a lot to raise awareness around conflict diamonds. Um, and then I think you have, if you fast forward, you know, a decade or so, you have the rise of sustainability, sort of general sustainability and how consumers are becoming a lot more socially aware and socially conscious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they are really starting to spend their money according to their values. Um, and so I think that's why you're seeing um, a rise in interest in conflict diamonds and wanting to avoid trying to purchase a conflict diamond, right? But it, which is quite difficult now. Um, but if you're 
there are some things that you can do if you're a consumer and you're, you're concerned about blood diamonds. There are some ways to guarantee that you don't get a blood diamond. But I think, um, you know, it was the Leonardo DiCaprio movie followed by the general sustainability movement that has really pushed this idea of blood diamonds into mm-hmm. the mainstream discussion. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, so, yeah, the in terms of the DiCaprio movie, this was in our you know, prelude to this discussion as well, that we thought that the... Um, the star power of mm-hmm. DiCaprio himself was uh, was fundamental in spreading the awareness of this um, movie. And then we further built on the discussion with um, one of our uh, missionaries of the Jamaat Emdia. So he was, you know, he was stationed in Sierra Leone. He saw some of the uh, the mining fields, and you know, he gave you he gave us a bit of a brief overview of them. So that kind of leads to the fourth question mm-hmm. uh, in regards to you know. How do you think that the you know the K- the Kimberley process, which we've we've done a bit of research ourselves about, uh, on this, you know, how has this process you know enabled to safeguard the rural communities of these areas? Um, I don't think it's done enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the definition that the Kimberley process uses, you probably know this, um, is quite narrow. The definition of a blood diamond is quite narrow. Um, diamonds financed by wars. Um, so that leaves out a lot of Um, circumstances where a diamond might be mined through exploitative means. Um, There's lots of loopholes in the process, right? The the mine of origin is not necessarily documented. Um, It can also, it has proven to be a highly politicized process. Um, And so I think the Kimberley process started with, you know, very good intentions, Mm. um, but has fallen quite short on its mission mm. yeah because like uh, one of the shortfalls I mean you've, you've pointed out I think three or four of the ways that I suppose uh, illicit diamond sellers uh, would circumvent the Kimberley process but one of them would be actually the definition of a rough diamond so uh, to my understanding um, if you actually process that diamond and then actually went and sold it and it was originally from a conflict zone it would still, you know, be uh, acceptable. So maybe there needs yeah. to be uh, a distinction, or not? Maybe there is a distinction, and you can clarify this for us. That um, there are those which are, say, for instance, Kimberley process certified, but are they actually of um, uh, what well, I should say provenance? The provenance to be totally flawlessly uh, using the phrase for diamonds yeah mm-hmm. but flawlessly you know nothing to do with conflict so i actually think the best solution that i've seen proposed to solve mm-hmm. this problem is uh blockchain um mm-hmm. I've, i'm quite skeptical in blockchain in a number of use cases but i actually think um traceability in the diamond supply chain is probably the best application of blockchain that i've come across um, if you can log a stone in the ledger from when it comes out of the ground, mm-hmm. you know, at the mine, and trace it all the way through um, cutting and mm-hmm. to the market, um, and there are, there are, yes, exactly. Um, then I actually think that would give the consumer, you know, a lot more confidence. Um, mm-hmm. I think if it's implemented properly, it's a lot harder to corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll still have people who are trying to smuggle diamonds, you know, out of problematic mines. But if you can, if you can have a ledger that tracks the stone, you know, the minute it comes out of the ground, all the way through to market, 
I think that does a lot to enhance the traceability of mm. the stone. Mm. So, you know, in that regard, you know, is it as simple as stopping, you know, us as the consumers uh, to actually stop the purchasing of diamonds uh, so that, you know, the international community can ensure that uh, fair trade? I mean, would that so, be the uh, ultimate, I, I, I suppose, kind of like, you know, um, last effort, really? Yeah. So I would say that um, you're never going to stop people from buying diamonds. I think that demand will never go away. Mm-hmm. I think another solution could be lab-grown diamonds, uh, which are increasing in popularity, and the prices are, are coming down. Um, and they are going to be quite competitive and are quite competitive with mine diamonds. Um, you know, buying a, a diamond that was grown in a lab, it's still a real diamond. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can ensure that it wasn't smuggled out of a problematic mine. Mm-hmm. Um, you can trace it back to the lab that created it. Um, so I don't think you need to stop the purchase of diamonds, um, you know, full stop. Mm-hmm. I think you just need to switch the demand from mine diamonds to lab-grown diamonds. Mm-hmm. And the consumer really needs to understand that a lab-grown diamond is not a synthetic diamond. It's a real diamond. Mm-hmm. Um, it just didn't come out of Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. It came out of a lab. But to my understanding, lab-grown diamonds, the current, um, I suppose, mass producer of that uh, is China currently. Is that correct? So there are producers all over the world. Um, China, I think, is one of the big ones, but Mm -hmm. they're also produced here in the U.S., for example, Mm -hmm. Mm, Um, on a smaller scale. On a smaller scale. But wouldn't that therefore... uh, Okay, I mean, I think initially as we were speaking to you um, regarding this, um, it is that marketing or, you know, the marketing mix which has made us believe that, you know, <clears throat> the most precious stone is the diamond. But in in all respects, it's quite common. Like you said, you know, there's a lot of diamonds out there. And hence, you know, when you kind of like increase that kind of supply uh, by not just having naturally formed diamonds, but also lab-grown diamonds, wouldn't that intrinsically or wouldn't that actually lessen the value, the intrinsic value of a diamond then? I mean, it makes it a better, a better prospect for us who have to actually pay for them. <laughs> yeah. So the intrinsic value of a, you know, sort of a, if excluding, you know, large diamonds, maybe five carats or more, but the intrinsic value of a diamond is quite low. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're not good investments. Right. Um, you know, I always kind of giggle when you come across a consumer who's surprised that they can't resell their diamond, you know, for what it's been appraised at mm-hmm. um you know it's it's really a commodity mm-hmm. um and and there's not a whole lot of intrinsic value in the diamond itself um and so but yes i mean i think the laws of supply and demand are going to go to work um as the supply of diamonds um increases um i think you'll see the the cost of of diamonds come down now i think you know, there will be a war between mine diamond and no, pun, mm-hmm. sorry, I shouldn't yeah. use the term war, but there will be sort of, you know, th- they will pit mine diamonds versus lab-grown diamonds, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because, the co- you know, companies that sell mine diamonds don't want to see their prices yeah, exactly. come down. And they, you know, <laughs> do, companies like the beer do tightly control the supply. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be pretty interesting to see um, how, uh, you know, this plays out. The other factor uh, that may have an impact on the overall market, um, you know, is the war in Ukraine, um, yeah. because Russia 
you know, supplies. I think it's like 30% of the world's rough diamonds. Um, and there have been a number of large luxury retailers that have come out and said, we're not going to buy, you know, that rough or, diamonds. you know, faceted diamonds made from that rough. Um, you know, companies like Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it, it'll be interesting to see, um, and I was tracking this, you know, previously, you know, what kind of impact that has on the, the price of, of diamonds. Mm-hmm. Well, Lisa, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. 0208 <coughs> or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, please do do so. You know, join in the conversation. I'm sure someone you know uh, who's dear to you has got some kind of diamond or some kind of precious stone, right? So let's just talk and see if it did cost three months worth of your salary to buy that uh, diamond ring because it didn't cost me that much i got to say right mm-hmm. but uh, maybe it was a bit of a downturn in the diamond market <laughs> <laughs> at the time so um in terms of uh you know how uh, and this is going back to something that sophia was like saying and our research our producers like uh, uh, got for us um as to when did we really have an understanding regarding conflict stones? Now, Global Witness was the first organization to bring the world's attention to this problem. Their groundbreaking report, A Rough Trade, was released back in 1998, uh, which exposed the role of diamonds in funding the civil war in Angola. It exposed the secretive practices of the global diamond industry, uh, or it put the practices of the diamond industry in the spotlight for the first time and prompted governments and industry to take action to eliminate conflict diamonds from global markets. An international uh, governmental certification scheme, uh, and we've already you know, had a, a touch on that, the Kimberley process was set up to prevent the trade in conflict diamonds. But despite these uh, positive steps, the issue has not gone away. Uh, profits from diamonds helped to fund the current conflict in the Central African Republic, which has left hundreds of thousands of people displaced from their homes. I mean, in Zimbabwe, Global Witness also exposed links between mining companies operating in the Morang area and the members of the military and secret police. The involvement in the diamond sector of security forces raises concerns over diamonds being used to finance human rights abuses. Mm. I mean... Is there an Islamic angle on this, Sophia? Of course, there is an Islamic angle on, on everything that we discuss. And I think uh, Islam, first of first and foremost, is, is obviously a religion of peace. And um, we've you know, explained it on, on the station many times that uh, Islam explores all avenues of mm-hmm. establishing peace, whether it's uh, on um, individual level or society level. So the same thing applies here as well that, you know, whether it's gold, silver, whether it's diamonds, you know, <clears throat> these these things have of value have existed existed for a very very long time, even at the time when Islam came came, you know, uh, there were uh, so many issues. Uh, greed has always been the main issue why people mm-hmm. take advantage of others, and you know why we find inequality in the world. Uh, and at that time as well, Islam said that you know uh, the same teaching that Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings fall be upon him. Um, stressed upon that you know be just and do not uh, exploit people give 
the the reward for for those people who make uh, efforts and work mm-hmm. hard again that implies also to to what's what's happening mm-hmm. with the blood diamonds as yeah, well yeah exactly fairness i suppose but uh without further ado we're joined by our next guest of the afternoon so we have with us Stephen press who is the assistant or a assistant uh, professor of history in the school of humanities and sciences Assalamu and peace and blessings be upon you, Stephen. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Uh, hi, yes, uh, thank you for having me. So we've been discussing conflict diamonds, and you've written a book about it. So, you know, uh, specifically about, um, uh, you know, your book, Blood and Diamonds, which was discussed, or which traced the devastating cost of diamond mining and German colonial domination in Namibia during the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, you know, we've heard, and you know, we're in the UK, so we've heard about the British and French Empire, you know, in those times, in those centuries in Africa. But what was the actual role of Germany in African uh, colonialism? And, you know, why were they actually so late uh, to the continent? Sure. Um, well, that's a, a very uh, good and important question. Um, one of the uh, big factors to keep in mind is that um, Germany as a political um, actor um, is not unified until considerably later relative to, to Britain and France. So, you know, we're really only talking about um, something that was possible, sort of a major effort toward overseas colonization. Uh, we're really only talking about something that was possible uh, from about the 1870s on. Um, and this is indeed um, more or less the timeline we have for major German uh, uh, colonial efforts overseas. There were previously um, uh, uh, more immediately dozens and then you know, before that hundreds of German political units, many of which had no connection to uh, uh, sort of powerful navies or anything like that. So uh, long story short, uh, uh, we're talking about from about 1870 on, uh, 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 something of a more concerted push toward overseas colonization. Uh, and this is something that really takes hold in the mid-1880s uh, for a, a sort of complex factor, uh, uh, a complex set of reasons. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, so, yeah, the next question I would probably just want to pick up from on that is that um, in regards to you said from the 1880s that's when Germany sort of made their impact on colonialism or some sort of impact on colonialism so what we want to discuss here is how long were Germany in Namibia uh, which was then called Southwest Africa and what was the humanitarian cost on the indigenous population at the time yes so we're really talking uh, about a roughly 30-year period here of, of something like a formal German colonial presence in what is now Namibia. Uh, more or less the, the dates here are 1884 to about 1914. The back end of that gets a little bit mm-hmm. complicated because of the effects of World War One and um, how, uh, to some extent, the, the formal possession uh, of the colony, as it was often termed, inched on, uh, on whether the international community um, accepted the idea. Um, mm-hmm. In any case, the, the humanitarian costs um, were uh, were extraordinary um, and and grim. Uh, the the two um, uh, the two main groups of indigenous people who interacted with with German colonial rule, uh, the Herero and the, the Nama, um, were uh, not immediately but uh, over the medium and long term 
devastated demographically uh, by uh, interactions with the Germans. And of course, um, from about, about 1904 to roughly 1907 or 1908, uh, there was something like the 20th century's first genocide uh, that took place uh, in what is now Namibia. Um, it's difficult uh, to, to gauge reliably exactly how many people perished as a result of, of uh, German violence. Um, but certainly we're talking about something in the neighborhood of 100 to 120,000 people who lost their lives just in this period uh, from 1904 to 1907. Um, and uh, long-term, uh, that demographic change had fairly devastating consequences. Um, and even today, in, in uh, the uh, independent sovereign city of Namibia, we have arguably sort of political underrepresentation of those two groups um, because of their demographic disadvantage. Right. Um, Stephen, thank you for that. Uh, I also wanted to just ask you about uh, you know, your book, Blood and Diamonds, uh, in that you disprove the common notion that German colonialism was a failure and show it mm, proved to be very economically fruitful. Could you perhaps uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's obviously strange to um, you know, think about uh, something like empire in relation to uh, to the concepts of success or failure, mm. um, especially when we're talking about human lives and, and morality. Uh, I would say that in the, the, the parlance of, of the sort of era of imperialism, it was common to think about, uh, for Europeans anyway, to think about uh, sort of losses and gains from the costs of empire. In that world, in that constellation, um, economically speaking, German colonialism was often said to have been a failure. Um, that is to say, more money was seen to be going out than was coming back in as a result of colonial violence, as a result of colonial engagements overseas. It was often said, for instance, that Germany had more important business with a place like Brazil than it did with, say, Southwest Africa slash Namibia. Um, while I don't overall mean to say that uh, in any sense, German colonialism was was a success. Uh, what I do think is is worth closer uh, attention is that in the diamond business and in the German colonial diamond business, there was an awful lot of money at stake, more than is appreciated, in part because of the secretive nature of the industry. And if one starts to sort of trace this amount of money, one may be inclined to revise the idea that there wasn't really any significant wealth or money at stake. In, in German uh, overseas colonialism uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I, I think one of, the, one of the interesting wrinkles is that the diamond business, inherently secretive as it is, um, is very effective at obscuring the, the real amount of money involved. Um, and when one you know, is able to kind of uh, look around that and, and look through some of the, the methods of obscuring uh, the money, um, it starts to seem like there was indeed an awful lot of money at stake, and a lot of that money was circulating in places that weren't necessarily um, transparent and weren't necessarily, in all cases, sort of um, clearly reported to the German public at the time, um, and, and so on. So it's really a question of just trying to follow the money in a way and, and trying to ask um, uh, how exactly it evolved um, over time with the control of this money, mm. part of this a short duration. German colonial presence in Namibia, relatively short. Um, the the long-term, extraordinary amounts of money that were made from Namibian diamonds um, tend not to be in any way as 
ascribed uh, to the, the the violence or, or laws that came out of the German colonial period. But in fact, if you go to the interview today, you'll see that um, one, one sees that uh, quite a bit of the legal architecture surrounding diamonds is, is still that of the German colonial government. Okay. Great. Uh, Stephen, uh, thank you very much. We, we obviously would like to have you uh, for a bit longer, but we have just uh, kind of running out a little bit of time, but we'll definitely, hopefully, touch base again. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, for joining us, Assistant Professor of History in School of Humanities and Sciences. Thank you very much, sir, for your time. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks. Like I said before, 0208 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. Uh, and why we had to uh, end our conversation with Stephen is that we've also got a pre-recorded interview with uh, Chie Murakami, who is Director General for Diamonds for Peace. And uh, it gives us a real deep insight into the current nature of conflict diamonds and the mining of conflict diamonds uh, in, in, you know, in its current status. Good afternoon uh, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. We're joined today by Chie Murakami, who is Director General for Diamonds for Peace, to speak more about the issue of conflict diamonds. Uh, good afternoon, Chie, how are you? Fine, thank you, good afternoon. Good afternoon, thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. So with conflict diamonds and uh, also known as blood diamonds, I mean, how did you yourself become aware of these issues uh, around the diamond mining industry and, um, you know, was this uh, what led to the establishment of Diamonds for Peace? Okay. Uh, when I got engaged in 2008, my future husband gave me an engagement ring with diamonds. Mm -hmm. So I got interested in diamonds because I didn't know anything about it. So I surfed the internet expecting uh, fun and happy stories around diamonds. Mm -hmm. But I was shocked to know that there are problems like fueling conflicts, child labor, human rights abuse, environmental destruction, uh, which is contrary to the fact that the diamonds are used to celebrate the happiest moments of our lives. Mm -hmm. So I was also shocked that this kind of information was only available in English. Well, uh, my native language is Japanese, so uh, I didn't find any information in Japanese. So I started to think what I could do because I felt some responsibility for knowing the problems mm -hmm. and Japanese didn't know anything about it. So uh, I was uh, working in the field of international development. So I started to think in what I could do and I came to a conclusion that I could apply the fair trade principles to diamonds. So uh, after that, I visited Liberia in West Africa in 2014 and decided to uh, establish Diamonds for Peace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, from our research, it shows that the area or the, the greatest, I suppose, concentration uh, previously of conflict diamonds came from, I suppose, Central and Western Africa in uh, Liberia, Angola, um, those areas. So, you know, with your uh, instigation of Diamonds for Peace, I mean, what are the biggest issues within the diamond industry in Africa uh, that people are, you know, like you said, you had no literature or information in Japanese, but just globally uh, mm -hmm. to make, you know, for us, for our listeners aware of those issues? Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, in Africa, uh, there are millions of artisanal diamond miners. And by artisanal, uh, we mean they use only very simple tools like mm -hmm. shovels and uh, screens to mine diamonds. So it's not and, like mass production in that sense. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's not a mass production. Uh, yeah, it's yes. They mine small quantity, but uh, in yeah, mostly in West Africa, in Central Africa, yeah, uh, they use that kind of methods. But for uh, Southern Africa, they the diamond mining is mechanized, so they're uh, large scale mining. Uh, but uh, my expertise uh, is uh, artisanal mining because I'm working in Liberia with uh, artisanal miners and they are in extreme poverty mm -hmm. and many of them live below the, the poverty line uh, of uh, US dollar $1.90 that, that's the World mm -hmm. Bank definition for the extreme poverty and many mm -hmm. of them below that line uh, and uh, sometimes uh, children are also working uh, Sometimes and those funds are used to fuel the conflict, and uh, we also think about the environmental destruction. But uh, the the recent years, uh, you know, the the love grown diamonds marketing has been successful uh, by claiming the natural diamonds industry uh, by attacking the natural diamond industry, and mm -hmm. uh, that they have such kind of issues. But the love grown diamonds doesn't have that kind of issues. And uh, I have to now say, uh, really? Because uh, the love-grown diamond manufacturing companies or brands claim that they don't have such kind of issues, but- mm. uh, They don't use conflict diamonds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. Or, or they don't have any human rights abuse or uh, they are environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. But- the majority of those uh, love diamond producing companies don't disclose the evidence that uh, those funds are not used for the uh, conflicts or their production is environmentally friendly or uh, human rights abuse is not uh, is not occurring in the factories. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's quite uh difficult to for me to believe what they are saying without the evidence and uh, another thing is uh, more than half of the love grown diamond factories are in china so that mm -hmm. means if you buy a love grown diamond the royalty and the tax are likely go to uh chinese government mm -hmm. so if you want to support chinese government that's fine but i don't think many of your listeners want to support the Chinese government. So you really need to think about it. And another thing, uh, okay, these days people say, oh, we should buy only love-grown diamonds because they're, you know, uh, they don't have any problems. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the artisanal uh, diamond miners in Africa, they are usually engaged in mining because there's no other options for them to work. Mm -hmm. So if consumers buy only lab-grown diamonds, those miners uh, will lose what little income they have at the moment. Mm, they'll become a monopoly, yeah. basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or I should say a monopsony. So that leads me on to uh, my next question, which is, you know, for our listeners, can you uh, just explain the Kimberley process certification 
scheme or KP scheme and you know what your thoughts are on it because um, you know according to uh, Ind or the diamond industry it's with this process that you can guarantee that diamonds coming out into um, society are conflict free. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, the Kimberley Process Certification Scheme is created in 2003 mm -hmm. uh, after uh, there was a big issue of civil war in Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone and Liberia was funded by diamonds. Mm -hmm. So this initiative is created by uh, UN to certify the shipment of rough diamonds as conflict-free in the process of export at the producing countries countries. So that targets mostly uh, African producing countries, but it has uh, uh, actually many problems and loopholes. So can I explain the problems yeah. about the KP? Yeah. Okay. So uh, the first of all, the KP's definition of conflict diamonds has a problem. So their definition is conflict diamond means rough diamonds used by rebel movements or their allies to finance conflict aimed at undermining legitimate government. Mm -hmm. So uh, in this definition, uh, okay, it's, you know, uh, the, the funds, if the funds are used to undermine uh, the legitimate governments only. So uh, if the legitimate governments use diamonds to, you know, su support the war uh, or the conflicts, they are still conflict-free diamonds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So therefore, it's it's a bit of like uh, hypocrisy, really. <laughs> one yeah, rule for, yeah, yeah. One rule for it's like how we describe, you know, one man's freedom fighter is another man's uh, terrorist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if the rebel group becomes a legitimate government, then okay, so they are free to use the diamonds to, you know, to use that money to do more uh, conflicts. And uh, another thing about this definition is. KP deals with rough diamonds only. So if the polished diamonds, because rough diamonds usually get polished after uh, export to uh, another country. So mm -hmm. if the polished diamonds are used to fuel the conflict or war or terrorism, they are still conflict-free according mm -hmm. to the KP definition. And secondly, the, the member, member countries operate the KP voluntarily and many African countries lack capacity to run KP uh, inside their countries. <clears throat> I mean, the many African governments with uh, big artisanal minor population uh, cannot tell where diamonds actually come from. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult yeah, for them to track the diamonds. So they just you know, uh, certify uh, diamonds as comfortably anyway because they want to collect the tax. So, so, mm -hmm. so, Chia, the thing mm -hmm. is with the KP process, is that actually, say, for instance, if we look at an individual country uh, like Liberia, would there be a specific government body who would be issuing these uh, certificates? Uh, yes, yeah, uh, there's a government uh, agency, mm -hmm. yeah, which issued their certificates. Mm. So, yeah, one can see that, I mean, as, as you've been pointing out, the I suppose the shortfalls of the KP uh, process, uh, what struck me was that actually it doesn't even address how those rough diamonds have been mined. So mm -hmm. it could be 
child labor, it mm -hmm. could be forced labor. Mm -hmm. um, so even if, so for instance, I were to come into uh, uh, or obtain rough diamonds and I was some kind of, uh, I had a, a mine which were engaged with child labor, they would be okay. Yeah, 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 that, exactly. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. So the, there are ways to, I suppose, circumnavigate uh, this uh, certification uh, process then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. So um, how does your uh, organization, your NGO, provide support then to improve the working conditions and social status of diamond workers? Because you said, you know, mm -hmm. they're only getting, I mean, you quoted the figure of just over a dollar uh, mm -hmm. wages. Yeah, I mean, that just seems so uh, disproportionate to actually the value of a diamond ring. And you yes. think you know, uh, one carrot, I don't know, I, I don't know, I haven't bought a diamond ring in a long time. But to me, it's quite uh, a quite a pricey commodity, right? So mm -hmm. for the actual to get that diamond in raw form out of the soil, out of the ground, and they're only getting paid uh, a dollar a day, let's say, um, seems very, very yeah, unfair. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what we're doing is, uh we cannot work with individual miners because there are millions of them so mm -hmm. we work uh with a cooperative of mm -hmm. uh artisanal diamond miners so currently we are working uh with uh one co cooperative in liberia and we are providing training uh like uh mining based on science because many miners believe in mice and superstitions we are teaching them uh, the mining based on science right. because many miners believe in mice or right. superstitions. Oh, okay. okay. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for example, uh, many mine, diamond miners in Liberia believe that uh, there's a female devil called Gina and she controls <laughs> the diamonds in the soil. So you need to give sacrifice like chicken to Gina to increase their wealth. Okay. to increase their yield but yield. that's not you know it's not true <laughs> <laughs> and why Gina <laughs> as, as, a, as a sacrificial god or whatever it may be yeah, so yeah, so, yeah you, you're, you're instigating more scientific practices yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. as to how to mine okay yes and uh, we are also providing other trainings like uh rough diamond valuation because uh many miners didn't know uh, how diamonds are used for and also uh, didn't know any value of it mm -hmm. so we have been providing very basic uh, training on raft and valuation and also we are supporting uh, side business like beekeeping or fishbone development because mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the codes causes for their extreme poverty is that they depend on a local investor who mm -hmm. provide some funds or uh, tools for diamond mining project. And in return, the miners have to sell their diamonds at the, the investors asking very low price. So mm -hmm. they, they need to break that cycle. So that means they need to increase their income. So that's why we are supporting uh, other uh, business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just instead of having all your eggs in one basket, Mm -hmm. uh i.e just all you're surviving on is diamond mining then you're 
looking to diversify mm-hmm. uh, their areas of income. Yes. Yeah, obviously that's a, and you know, it's unfortunate to hear that, I mean, is there any way that, say for instance, uh, you're based or you're doing the work in Liberia, you were saying, Mm -hmm. that, you know, these local uh, investors, I mean, are they, um, is there any government scrutiny of them? Because there must be some kind of, uh, I, I suppose, because if they are, hiring or sorry i should say renting the equipment to the miners that are there no contracts is there no kind of uh, government scrutiny over these contracts well um the government doesn't have any scrutiny uh, scrutiny on their contract but they have a law that only the licensed people can buy or sell diamonds and the majority of those uh, local investors don't have any license. So actually, it's illegal to sell diamonds to them, but it's happening. Oh, okay. So it is being circumvented. <laughs> so finally, uh, Chia, mm-hmm. you know, what is needed uh, on a global, uh, international level to ensure uh, that diamonds can be sourced ethically? Because mm-hmm. you know, there is that classification of not just uh, being non-conflict diamonds, but I suppose that extra classification of being ethically sourced mm-hmm. uh, as we obviously you know, previously touched upon yeah uh well in my opinion the most important thing is that the more uh consumers uh we the consumers need to be more thoughtful and mm-hmm. ask questions at the jewelry shops when we buy any diamonds or diamond jewelries uh, they're currently uh, not many consumers ask that kind of questions like where this diamond is mined or what is the condition of the, the diamond mine or factory. So that doesn't give much incentive for the industry to change. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's also important to, to observe the OECD guidance on uh, responsible mineral supply chains, but uh, it's it's risky for 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 us to you know to blindly believe or trust any scheme. So I think uh, that the more consumers ask that kind of questions at the jewelry shops globally, then mm-hmm. the diamond industry uh, needs to change and provide uh, the ethical sources for diamonds. Mm-hmm. So I mean, uh, you know, from the inception of uh, Diamonds for Peace to present day, have you seen that shift? Uh, in consumer awareness as to, you know, uh, the processes uh, that uh, enable uh, that rough diamond to come out of the ground and end up in a ring or earrings or necklaces. I mean, have you seen that shift? Because say, for instance, I'm I'm casting my mind back to uh, the fur trade, for instance, uh, and, you know, also uh, quite a controversial uh, industry. Um, because obviously you're killing animals to to wear their fur, and then there was a, a sea change uh, in that industry, whereby um, obviously with popular uh, opinion and consumer opinion, that industry had to change in the end. So you know, is that something that you would hope for within the diamond industry? Yeah, yeah. And uh, currently, the, I can say the ethical sources for diamonds is only from Canada and Australia and not from uh, any developing countries. And the fair trade is about the products from developing countries. So uh, we are uh, you know, trying to uh, 
encourage the consumers. And we can see that the consumer's awareness uh, is rising little by little over mm -hmm. the years. Yeah. But I think, yeah, more consumers will be aware of that, the problems in, in the future. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show and spending some time. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Chia Murakami. Uh, thank you once again. Have a good day. Thank you very much. So that was my interview with Chia Murakami. So I'm just going to go over to uh, Rana, who's just going to wrap this up for us. Yeah, so I think the uh, entire discussion itself has been very fruitful and uh, we've touched upon you know some of the core issues in regards to the entire conflict diamond uh, issues and uh, we're very thankful to the guests who have also given their views on this and to the people who've also asked their qu uh, you know deep down dug into this discussion now i think it's uh, very important to go into you know the book uh, the holy book itself mm -hmm. uh, the entire purpose of our you know uh, our discussion here mm -hmm. and this book is exactly, uh, it, it was revealed 1400 years ago, but it's every uh, subject that it covers, you know, it's for the, for, the, uh, for the remainder until the day of judgment as we believe so. So I think it's very important to uh, touch upon one verse, which is very uh, relevant to this subject. It's in Surah Al-Baqarah verse 189 and God Almighty states, and do not devour your wealth among yourselves through falsehood and offer it not as a bribe to the authorities that you may knowingly devour a part of the wealth of other people with injustice. So I think this, you know, completely touches upon the subject of mm -hmm. uh, conflict diamonds and you know what's the wrongs with it and how we should avoid it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Now to finally uh, end this subject, um, we should also include uh, Hazrat Khalifa al Masih al Khamis's um, address, which he made in the uh, Dutch Parliament. Um, I'm just going to read a quick yeah. quote of it, and then okay. we're going to end this. Uh, today we are seeing many first world countries increasing their investments in the poorer and developing nations. It is imperative that they act with justice and seek to help those nations and not merely utilize their natural resources and cheap labor forces <coughs> for their own national gains and profit making. So I think that's pretty much mm -hmm. self-explanatory. Yeah, self yeah. So with that, we go to the five o'clock news. Join us after the five o'clock news where we'll be talking about mental health issues. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show, or Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man. Uh, I'm joined by Imams uh, Safir Khan and Rana Rahman. And we've just had our discussion regarding blood diamonds or conflict diamonds. Very interesting. Uh, and now we're going to go into our second discussion of the day, which is mental health or mental health issues. Uh, and in this aspect, we're, you know, we're going to look at that, uh, the debate, is it you know, nature or nurture? Now, the expression nature or nurture uh, in English 
has been in use since Eliz- the Elizabethan period, and it goes back to even medieval France. Now, that phrase, in its modern sense, was popularized by the Victorian polymath Francis Galton. Now, Galton was influenced by the origin of species written by his half-cousin, I mean, this is name-dropping, uh, the evolutionary biologist Charles Darwin. So quite an influential family in itself. The long-standing nature versus nature, uh, nurture debate is a scientific, cultural, and philosophical debate uh, in biology and society. Now, nature is often defined in this debate as genetic or hormone-based behaviors, traits, or dispositions, whilst nurture is most commonly defined as your environment, your uh, the culture uh, and experiences that one may have. Now, in uh, the show, we're going to be discussing the effects of these two, uh, I suppose, these two kind of like uh, factors, right, mm. uh, on mental health in itself. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's a, again, very relevant topic as we uh, introduced in the beginning. You know, some people... Uh, when it comes to mental health, um, you know, uh, may just be passing, uh, you know, through it. Uh, whereas for others, uh, it can be a daily challenge. Um, as you mentioned earlier as well, a lot of people have this stigma as well to talk about it. Mm-hmm. They don't feel confident or, um, you know, uh, proud or, or you know, uh, um, I mean, it's not easy. It's it, not easy. Yeah, well, it's, it's, the thing is, mental health issues aren't visible. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's the thing. You don't mm. see it. If you see, say, for instance, someone walking, you you know, yeah. right? Your friend, uh, relative will, walking around, maybe with a limp. You're like, you're straight away, you're asking them, oh, you know, how's your leg? Yeah. Or what happened? But, you know, when you have yourself a mental health issue, um, you may not know it yourself even, mm. right? Mm. You might be feeling depressed. You might feel anxiety. You might feel... Whatever it is, there's a multitude. There's so many different. You, um, might not, you might not even want to be poked about it. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's. I mean, I think we have got away with the stigma of talking about mental health, mm. health issues uh, out in the open. But obviously, it's always down to that person who's suffering. Exactly. And I and think there is also, you know, these cultural. Th- mm. There is cultural appropriation to mental health as well. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for instance, uh, in some cultures, um, I've witnessed that it's probably not the uh, it's not very encouraged to uh, actually speak up that look I'm going through these issues mm-hmm. uh, you'll be seen as weak um, and sometimes it's said okay well you're a man you should be mm-hmm. man you know, up yeah you should man up mm-hmm. you shouldn't have to uh, you know toughen up this is it this is mm. we've got to deal I'd, with I'd it go, I'd go as far as saying not just cultural um, issue or the, these are things of a cultural bias it's almost generational as well yes. yeah. Yeah. I'm like thinking about um, my mum, she's in her 80s, late 80s, and she had never encountered something called depression mm. in her whole life. Even to this day, she doesn't encounter depression because she has no you know, concept of what that is, uh, although she most probably has experienced it in her life. Uh, I mean, I, I think you know, we're enough as a family to depress her at times, <laughs> uh, look back, right? But Yes, I'm sure my mother suffered from depression, but from her generation, it was a case of, well, actually, no, it's just I'm not feeling well. Uh, I'm going to have some sleep and I'm going to wake up and I'm going to yeah, get on with it. Exactly. And it's that kind of way of and thinking. And that's, that's something that's, uh, you know, 
has been prevalent in in Asian communities as well. Uh, it's been like uh, you know, you don't talk about it or you, you don't know. you just you just feel like okay, who who am I going to talk yeah. to? And if I speak to someone, um, how are they going to? Is this going me? to expose me? Yeah, as being how are they? Weak gonna, or, yeah, yeah, are they mm. actually even taking me seriously, yeah. or are mm. they just like uh, have I just become vulnerable to this yes. person? Mm. Yes, exactly. I mean, just to chuck in some stats there for for us to to, to ponder. Now, approximately one in four people suffer from mental health problems in the UK. Uh, the number of mental health cases has been significantly rising, especially, you know, something that you've pointed out, Sophia, especially since COVID-19, the pandemic. Uh, the overall rise in uh, prevalence of a probable mental disorder has jumped around 25% in the last two years, uh, especially amongst young boys and girls. Mm. Now, in the Holy Quran, Allah says that, you know, or Allah has created us to test created us to test us, test our strengths, our belief and faith in him. Every human on this earth goes through trials and tribulations. It is up to us on how uh, we deal with these hardships in our lives, going through physical, mental or any other types of issues throughout our lives does not mean that we are not normal or that Allah dislikes us and giving up when faced with hardship is the opposite of what Allah expects from us. Mm. Now, you know, can we elaborate? You know, I've got two imams. I've got uh, a lot of a lot of resources at my, at my fingertips. So can we elaborate what that verse of the Holy Quran is saying? I mean, is it as literal as it is? I think uh, th there are several things that we can talk about. I mean, uh, the test itself, uh, you know, everything that we are going through is kind of a test every day is a test as well how we are spending our day how we get along uh, get on with our challenges and i think another verse of the holy quran also uh, sheds a little bit more light on it where allah the almighty says la yukallifullahu nafsan illa wasaha that mm -hmm. uh, allah you know does not burden a soul beyond its capacity mm -hmm. so where we have burdens we have challenges within our nature uh, allah the almighty also has given us that strength now mm -hmm. yes people who are suffering with uh, different mental mental health issues they need help and mm -hmm. that's why you know god has created us as a community i mean if we look at um, islam the essence of community is very central you mm -hmm. you know they find that the prophet used to meet his companions um, encourage to say assalamu alaikum peace be upon you greet uh, your brothers um, and constantly find out how how they are how they are doing. And yeah, so you have that support yes, network. Yes, yes, talking yeah. to each other, finding out. And if anybody was ill, the prophet himself would go and and find out how they're doing, mm -hmm. console them. You know, um, mm -hmm. even if it was a small thing, it's it's actually a right in Islam mm -hmm. uh, that if you are six, that your brother or mm -hmm. your Muslim uh, brothers in faith should come and mm -hmm. and and find out and so, talk to you. I mean, Sophia, I why. Yeah, you know, I'll put a context mm. to that, yeah. whereby that would be so, I suppose, um, the necessarily way or the necessary way to be. So, say for instance, you had someone or someone suffers from bipolar disposition, and that mental disposition, anyway, uh, you have to. T well, currently you're taking medication, right? Mm. So, therefore, that person may feel better mm. because of the medication. They might feel, yeah, I'm normal. So then, therefore, I don't need to take the medication. So it's almost like, what's the word? It's like an ever-decreasing circle, or it's a rut of which you're caught in. Mm. Because once you start thinking, I'm normal, or 
okay, I shouldn't say normal, but I'm feeling better, right, mm. uh, from my condition, I maybe not need to take my meds. So once you don't take your meds, you get back to being having that bipolar disposition. Mm. So what I'm trying to kind of get in there yeah. is that Islamic side is like, look, if you were part of a community and you do know, or actually I've got a relative, I've got a friend who's got this disposition, yeah. it'll be a case of like keeping an eye on them. Like, well, actually, maybe they've fallen off, not the wagon, I'm trying to look for a terminology mm. which look, is like that. And then, yeah, yeah, you can help them back. Mm. Yeah, Look, the Islamic teaching, as I said, about looking after each other, it's not just limited, uh, you know, you would agree with me, Rana. it's not limited to your relatives, but actually yeah. also to your neighbor. Like, how many of us actually do find out how our neighbor is doing, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. it's, it's We live in a society where everybody is living within themselves and... And sometimes selfish. we, to yeah, not even selfish. Maybe maybe we don't realize that we, yeah. we somebody living next door could could be really suffering with something. Yeah. And maybe mm -hmm. us just talking to them or inviting them over for a cup of tea mm -hmm. could could just really make hello. a big difference. Yeah. To yeah. your community in general as yeah. well. I think in regards to um, us as a community, it's very important to always keep an eye out for each other. For in regards to the trial itself, you know, there's not always you know financial trial. People, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. these are things. Oh, I've got a parking ticket. Oh, they're mount mounting up. Mm -hmm. You know, these are trials. You know, we face on a daily basis. But then there are there's other trials. For instance, grief. Um, these things. You know, we we listen to Hazur's khutbah all the time, and he always mentions, look, I stay awake at nights praying for all the difficulties that my community is going through. I know about. For instance, those parents whose daughters are not getting married, you know, the, mm. that that feeling. Mm. You know, these are small, small things that our mm. caliph really, you know, he really cares about. Mm -hmm. And they also count in, uh, I wouldn't say mental health issues, but just griefs and trials. That no, anxiety, if you think yeah. about it, that's anxiety. Yeah, right, anxiety, exactly, yeah. But to talk more about this debate, uh, nature versus nurture, we're actually joined by our first guest of the day, uh, who is Dr. Krapez K. Assalamu alaikum. Hello. Uh, peace and blessings be upon you, uh, David. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. And thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So we're talking about uh, mental health issues or mental health in general, but is it nature versus uh, nurture? Now, can you tell us a little bit about your organization, Mental Health Foundation, and what motivated you to work in the field of mental health and actually campaign for these issues surrounding mental health, uh, such as Every Mind Matters? Yes, of course. Uh, the, the Mental Health Foundation is a, is a UK charity, and we've been working in the mental health field for over 70 years. Uh, we have a particular interest in what people can do to promote good mental health and prevent poor mental health. Uh, and uh, my motivation, I've been directly and personally affected by mental ill health. Uh, I have experienced you know, significant mental illness in my time. Many of my friends and family have experienced that. Uh, and I, I guess my primary motivation is to do everything I can to uh, get people to avoid poor mental health and get the best possible mental health that they can. And if people are experiencing mental illness, then do everything we can to support them and to, 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 to make sure that that illness doesn't completely take over your life. And you can still have a, a very good life, even in the context of experiencing mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of Every Mind Matters, I was... I was um, I think that was probably the first uh, government-led public mental health campaign that really focused on positive mental health, and I was uh, 
I worked for Public Health England uh, part-time for, for three years on that campaign, and we reached millions of people uh, to, to give them simple, uh, practical tips to help improve their mental health on a day-to-day -day basis and, and, and also to support each other's mental health. <coughs> So, um, as you co-chair the International Society of Psych Psychiatric Genetics, how important do you think it is? Uh, how important you think is the awareness to understand the underpinnings, underpinnings of psychiatric gene genetics to help people understand mental health and helping those who suffer with mental disorders due to genetic conditions? Pretty. Uh, complex, but yeah. <laughs> can we break yeah. that down? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I, I mean, I think you, you, your your introduction talking about nature versus nurture is a really uh, nice, simple way of trying to understand it. So, our our mental health and and, and mental illness, um, some of that is is down to our genetic makeup, um, our family history, um, but actually in real terms that's quite a small component of it mm -hmm. um, so you know, if, if I was forced into a position where you were asking me how much is nature how much is nurture I would say the environment and the life you live and, and, and the, the things that affect you uh, on a day-to-day -day basis have probably slightly more of, of an impact on your mental health than, than your, your, your genetic makeup so it, it has an impact and we know that there are uh, some genetic relationships with some psychiatric conditions, some mental illnesses, but for the most part, um, we genuinely don't know. I mean, there were, many years ago, we thought there was going to be a gene to explain everything, and I think mm -hmm. uh, any geneticist now will tell you that it's very, very rare for anything, uh, anything health or mental health, to be directly related to a single gene. But there are th there are definitely genetic influences. Mm. Um, there are also, and this is equally interesting, there, there are also um, uh, genetic influences on how we respond to treatment. So um, I, I heard a conversa uh, your conversation a little earlier about how people respond to medication, uh, and we will all respond differently. And one of the mm -hmm. reasons that we may respond differently to medication will be our genetic makeup. And, and actually, some of that's about the genetic makeup of our liver. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you, know, you consume a tablet, uh, or you have an injection and your body and my body will react slightly differently to that. So, mm -hmm. so different amounts of that will have an effect. And um, there are some really good developments in psychiatric genetics that are about making sure that we give people appropriate treatments mm. uh, as well as trying to understand the condition. But I, I think, uh, again, um, <clears throat> what's much more important um, is, is, is looking after ourselves and each other. Uh, mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I went to a big genetic conference talking about all the genetic influences on, on mental health. Uh, I, I collared the genetic expert who'd just given a really interesting presentation, and I said, uh, I said to her, okay, so what, should, what is the best thing I can do to protect my mental health uh, if I'm you know, at elevated genetic risk? Mm -hmm. And she said, get a good night's sleep um, <laughs> exercise well uh, look after yourself um, you know look after each other mm. and and yes of course your genes play a part but mm. actually uh, there is so much more to it than that and, and getting a good night's sleep and looking after each other and looking after our communities are are likely to have much more of an effect mm. than our genes okay. um, so I wish I could give you any a simple answer uh, but but this 
but you kind of probably already know yeah, it's more yeah, complicated than that. Yeah. I think, you know, um, with the NHS, uh, we, we all know it's struggling, it strikes and, uh, you know, uh, shortages of staff in, in almost every uh, department. Uh, uh, you know, experts are saying that ment- mental health um, experts and, uh, you know, staff will be much needed in the future. So, um with 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 all of this um happening how important uh, is is self help measures i mean you just alluded to some of that as well um so what advice would you give to our listeners um how they can uh, you know look after their mental health and if they're struggling what kind of advice uh, would you give to them to seek help uh, and how yeah I, i mean the first thing to do is 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 the one of the things that i love about uh, about your radio station uh and you know i've spoken to you a few times now is that you're promoting really good healthy discussions about mental health and that is incredibly important in itself to create a climate in which people can talk about their mental health is so much safer and healthier than a, a climate that i grew up in when you 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 really weren't mm. you, you weren't encouraged to talk about it so yeah i mean it was always the white elephant in the corner of the room wasn't it really it, absolutely uh, and and i think just having these conversations and just giving people permission to talk about their mental health is a really good step and to do it in a community environment in a family environment in a faith environment all of these things mean that you're just we're much more aware of our own and each other's mental health and we're much more aware of when people might need support uh and there is a lot of a lot that you can do um you know to support your 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 friends and family and your community and and you know i i i wasn't i wasn't joking and my genetics friend wasn't joking when she said get a good night's sleep because <laughs> sleep is sleep is really important mm-hmm. for your mental health um you know and and if you're feeling anxious and stressed about things then you know just kind of talking about that and getting that out and not dwelling on it and overthinking it before bedtime is really good so that you can get a you can get a good night's sleep and you can <coughs> approach these things freshly in the morning um be aware of things that might trigger poor mental health you've talked about grief and bereavement we know that those do um health conditions may affect your mental health as well um clearly um you, if you're worried about your job if you're worried about your money and finances again talking about those worries with people is going to help a little bit and and getting practical support for the problems uh, as well as the mental health is important we what i think what we can't do is is just expect uh mental health services to to pick up the pieces when everything else has gone wrong if you're worried about um your finances then 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 seek help about your finances and that will help to ease your anxiety a little bit um but but be aware of of, of friends and family and and if you think they're struggling just talk to them have a conversation with them uh, have a cup of tea with them go for a walk with them all the you know just 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 listening to somebody is incredibly helpful for their mental health mm. and it's it's actually good for your mental health as well yeah it's always people. good to talk so david i mean Yeah, I quoted the stat one in four people are suffering from mental health issues here in the UK. And you know, that's a significant or well, it's significantly rising since COVID. I mean, yeah. you know, with that in mind, I mean, especially amongst our young people and ethnic minorities uh and those communities. I mean, what steps can be taken to help, you know, address this issue? And um, you know, once again, what advice would you have for our listeners uh from these you know minority communities which may not have that accessibility 
as other yeah. communities have. I, I think I, I think it's really important. One of the things that I did just just before the, the break was I was working with um, a number of people who support refugee communities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and just they. I mean, you, you, you must. I mean, I, I was just thinking as you're talking about that. I think the amount of anxiety you must have being within the refugee community. Oh, enormous. Yeah. I mean, you've come from, you've experienced trauma at exactly. the start because you wouldn't be a refugee. You've probably had a traumatic journey. Mm -hmm. You arrive in a new country uh, and, and the trauma doesn't stop there. You know, we, we, I think we, we as a country need to be much more, much more friendly and accepting of all communities and mm -hmm. particularly refugee communities who've experienced trauma because we know that's one of the things that has a very significant impact. On, on, on mental health. They, often people won't be familiar with the language, they won't be familiar with the services. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we've been doing with refugee communities is, is giving, giving refugee leaders the skills to share mental health tips mm -hmm. uh, and support with each other, to encourage them to talk to that. And we, we, we call it peer support and we call it self-management and we can call it all sorts of things. But, but really it's having good, solid relationships that are about support and recognizing that people might call mental health different things in different communities and not all languages you know, use, use the words for mental health and mental illness that we do. Um, but, but talking about emotions, talking about stress, talking about anxiety, talking about fears, um, and then thinking, sharing things that we've all done that have helped us with each other. Those are the kind of things that, that we can do. And, and they do, in my experience, they, they do translate, the, the principles translate across languages and across communities. And, and certainly I know that um, faith communities have been immensely important in supporting some people's mental health. Uh, and, and sometimes that, that's, that's a really important first step to, to getting back on the path to really good mental health. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dr. David, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. And thank you for inviting me, and, <clears throat> and I wish all your, your listeners well. Thank you very much. Have a good day. 0208-687-7878 is the number to call. You can also tweet at Voice of Islam UK if you wish to send in your comments. We'd love to hear from you, actually. What are the different ways you look after your mental health? Um, do give us a call. Um, mm -hmm. If there's anything that we haven't mentioned, then we'd love to hear from you. Um, if you're listening in, I think uh, two things that were in my mind when when uh, <coughs> Dr. David was speaking was that you know in Islam uh, we we talk briefly about uh, you know how to look after uh, your men mental health in terms of community spirit, but also individually. You know, yeah, there there's so many different mental health issues, and you have to always keep in mind the professional help and mm -hmm. medical help, which is very very important. One should never neglect that. But uh, just on general point, uh, Islam, you know, the, the, the purpose of uh, prayers, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which are uh, primarily to, to create a stronger bond with Allah the Almighty, but it also gives you an opportunity to reflect and pray to God and let out all of that, um, you know, anxiety and issues that you have. You ask God to help you with that and make things easier for you, show you the right path, for example, and you do those prayers which are very powerful every day five times a day so if you do your prayers properly as well it can really really help you 
to gain inner peace, uh, tranquility, and uh, people do yoga, meditation, different kind of things to achieve the same mm-hmm. purpose of peace, you know, inner peace and mm-hmm. relaxation. And I think uh, you know, you've, you've hit that. that nail on the head there, Safir, because you know, post-COVID, although we are still <coughs> you know, within that pandemic, but with the you know, occurrence of COVID back in 2019, uh, you've seen this huge increase in you know, searches on the internet for mm-hmm. self-help, yeah. reflection. So, you know, although, you know, they might be looking at an in, inner calmness, mm. but, you know, for us as, you know, believers, as uh, we all believe in Islam here, uh, you know, it is the voice of Islam here that we're, we're promoting Islam as a message to, uh, to all believers and, that, and non-believers. That, you know, it's that journey and destination. Well, actually, sorry, it's the journey of trying to find a connection with your creator. And, you know, truly, if you set path or you set foot on that path to trying to find your creator uh, and make a connection with that creator, with your creator, the actual beauty of that is that it gives you this, and I think Sophia said, you know, this, this calmness, this serenity. And I can tell, well, from my own experience, you know, pre uh, Pre-Islam, I would say, right before mm. converting, I used to be really quite a control freak. I still am, but then you know, you think that most things are within your 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 realm. Yeah, you, know, you can control those things, mm. right? Um, but you see, when you actually, and it wasn't the fact that I didn't believe in a creator. It's just that the all-encompassing, omnipotent power of Allah Taala, right? Mm. That it's his will and whatever we do and whatever we achieve or don't achieve right uh in this world is down to his wishes right um and his plan so when you know for myself i was like I used to think uh you know can i do this can i do that but actually when you have that submission to god and you're trying to f- and you make that link with god and your own link because no one can people can tell you the methodology through prayer through whatever but it's actually a very personal thing. It's down to that individual person to find, you know, to, to, to hold on to that rope of, uh, you know, towards their creator. But once you do find that, you find ultimate peace because it takes a lot of burden. Actually, I found it took burden off my shoulders because, yes, it doesn't mean that you just lead a fruitless life. You sit on your, your bum and don't do anything because you say, you know, God's going to provide for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> I believe in God. God's going to provide for me. It's, all things are going to be good. No, that's not the case. It's like you do try. You have your plans. But then you come to be reflective as if, you know, if your plans don't come to fruition. You know, we have uh, a prayer in uh, in Islam and it's the Iskahara prayer. Mm. And one of the results of the Iskahara prayer is that actually if this thing, whatever I want, is not right for me, deter me from it. Yeah. Right? So when would you in your normal life like say, right, okay, I want to, I don't know, I don't, You've got a project at work. Yeah. Why would you deter yourself from the end game, you know, to finishing that project? Because maybe it wasn't the right time for mm. it. Yeah. And, you know, with our worldly eyes, we don't see that. Mm. Yeah. We're part of a, um, I always like to think of ourselves as being part of a massive kind of like mural. But you don't actually see the beauty of the mural until you step outside, yeah. right? Yeah. And we don't step outside. We're part of that mural. We're mm. part of the, 
the you know the multi kind of like colored thing which is life and and the thing is i think you've explained it beautifully because you know every loss and ultimately all human beings will have experienced some kind of loss you know mm-hmm. whether it's your relative whether it's your you know parents uh, you know everything is you know uh, temporary mm-hmm. so that you know islam does remind you of that you know mm-hmm. and when you say inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun that surely to allah do we belong and to him shall we return it's a good reminder that mm-hmm. don't be too too sad stuck. or uh, yeah stuck yeah. or anxious about losing something because you know if you've given it all mm. and if you're prayed as well then trust god you know god mm. god has better plan for you mm. and i would also uh, like to add to your initial point in regards to the um, you know the prayer itself uh, i think we were initially we were discussing how um, what are the ways you know um, god tries us mm. and you know in in fact what we, what we were actually discussing was that you know when you express yourself your your issues now prayer is one thing where you know you are in solitude with your creator as you've also um Peter has also alluded to here mm. and uh, this is one per one entity who kn- already knows what's in your heart and uh, but now you've got the opportunity in your own time to just express yourself without anyone else judging listen- you or anything listening, listening to yeah. you but mm. you're just speaking directly to him <coughs> and you have this satisfaction mm. that look I've just literally given yeah. everything yeah. Argentina to win yeah <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so that's you know that's the whole beauty of you yeah. know the essence of prayer and in in w- in in a way it helps with uh, yeah. the o- this whole concept of yeah. how to improve mental health as well no definitely i mean if prayer is done properly and and you know we have to be true that sometimes we our prayer standards of prayers are not always that good we do mm-hmm. five times a day and sometimes we fall below that standard but once the standard is there yeah. you do feel and that I, you've done something and i would something. say that it is individual as well yeah. i would mm-hmm. say look there is this you know uh, this uh, hadith or there's a story Saying of hazrat hazrat musa alislam you know he there was a you know there was a, this sort of complaint that he had in regards to a person doing his his style of worship i'm just giving you an oval mm. general um, i'm not going into the whole yeah, detail yeah, yeah. of it but um god almighty revealed to him at that time look this is his way of expressing himself you don't mm-hmm. need to uh come in between me and my mm-hmm. my uh, worshiper here yeah, so everyone <laughs> everyone has their own yeah, way exactly. of expressing yeah. their worship mm. so that's that's fine mm. so let's bring the conversation back to uh the actual the nuts and bolts of it because we were talking about nature and nurture so you know if we look at uh in terms of um genetic factors which may affect mental health uh, i know uh, david was like saying that uh, in his opinion actually it's more about nurture mm. uh, if if there were kind of like um you know a proportion maybe 70 80% is more nurture but there is that genetic disposition so when it comes to genetic factors in mental health scientists have proven that psychiatric disorders run in families and suggest some potential roots that's why doctors ask patients with a family history of mental health conditions to actually help them diagnose their patient properly now studies have shown that the following association of biological factors that affect the development of mental health disorders uh, these studies have shown genetic disposition has been proven to be a major uh, or sorry i should say an important factor in mental health conditions such as schizophrenia bipolar and major depression now bipolar for example is four to six times more likely to develop when there is a family history of the condition 
PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, and major depressive uh, disorder are 20 to 45 percent inherited, or 20 to 45 percent inherited. Uh, anorexia nervosa and alcohol dependence are 50 to 60 percent uh, inherited. Uh, autism spectrum disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, I think I've mentioned those before, mm. are 75% uh, genetic. So the, there is that disposition uh, regarding that. But yeah. uh, I think we've, we'll just move on to our next guest of the afternoon because we've got her on hold. Uh, we've got Alia Nasir, who is a mental health therapist, uh, to speak more regarding this. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, Alia. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you so much for having me on. So we're talking about uh, mental health issues, uh, nature versus nurture. Now, as a mental health therapist, you know, from your experience, yeah, uh, with your patients and the people that you 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 take care of, uh, what factors do you feel play a predominant role in influencing or actually resulting in poor mental health? Is it, you know, what? in your opinion is it is it nature or nurture it uh, so it's it's pretty complex because it's kind of an interaction of both in some manners but environmental factors play such a huge role in the outcome of mental health disorders mm -hmm. and the reason for that is is things like lifestyle changes um you know drug and alcohol behaviors uh, you know the, the the how you're living. You know, are you are you living in you know, the type of ho housing you're living in, the nutrition that you're taking in, all these kind of factors influence the way that your mental health will be. And of course, trauma, uh, stress, um, and uh, the relationship breakdowns. So many so many facets. So these are mostly things that you're experiencing in the outside world. Mm. And these are the things that, you know, are often are often brought in and are often the things that we have to kind of come to terms with and rectify within a, a certain sort of therapeutic treatment plan. Mm. Um, so I was more interested in regards to a, a point that my father once made. We once saw a athlete on TV. Um, you know, he had this issue with he couldn't. He, he, he was too scared to travel abroad, mm. right? And my, my mm. father made a very important point. It wasn't Dennis Bergkamp, was it? No, no, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, Mar it was, it was Marcus Treskothic. Okay? Oh, so okay, um, okay. my father Good said that spin. you could see that from his body that his mental issues have actually taken a, a toll on his body. Okay? Mm. You, you could mm. see that he's gone completely out of shape here. So my question here is that how can mental health manifest itself uh, in one's physical health? Oh, I mean, it's just the two are completely interlinked. Mm -hmm. um, so if we take the, the, the case of maybe depression, since this is one of the most common uh, mental health um, issues in, in uh, the Western world, Eastern world, if we take that, we see that, you know, with depression, with the mental burden that comes with that, you know, there's sleepless nights. And the sleepless nights then affect your your physical energy, you know, the next day and the the way that your bones are and of course you know there have been studies that have examined that things like depression have caused inflammation in the body and can lead to different sort of illnesses that are you know uh, maybe from gut intestinal issues um bone health it, the list is quite endless but 
mental health has such a huge impact on physical health because of the brain chemistry and because of the way it alters your lifestyle choices everything has a knock-on effect so it's very it's very right what you're saying and, and this becomes very visible you know after a while it takes an absolute toll on the body and the the way and and and, and the way that we we kind of treat mental health is that just because we can't see it you know, it doesn't mean it's not, it, it's not going to eventually manifest itself in the physical because it almost always does. And that's the reality of it as well. You know, weight gain, all these kind of issues just start coming up mm. from mental health issues. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to be on it because it does, it does eventually come up. It does eventually show. Mm, absolutely. Thank you very much for that. I mean, what advice would you give to people who have been informed that they have genetic uh, predisposition to certain addictions or, say, mental health disorders? How can they minimize experiencing the effects of uh, psychopathic events? I think when when I've had clients who've come in and just have told me, you know, I have depression that runs in my family, you know, I have, yes, there are some disorders which in studies have been shown to have a genetic link, um, such as certain schizophrenic type behaviors and such. But a lot of the time the clients, they come in and, and they can feel very defeated. They're like, well, this is my fate. This is my destiny. I'm just destined to get this. And actually, it's really important to discuss with the client, like, why, wh- how, how does this kind of, um, this, this, this information that you've been given, how is this impacting you? How is it making you feel? And, and how bad do you actually feel it would be? And, and once you can get a gist of it's actually more the person rather than being slapped with a label that they feel that they have to, you know, you know, um, fulfill this kind of destiny of having this. It's really important to acknowledge that protective factors, whether you have a genetic predisposition or not, is really, really important. This means lifestyle changes. How much sleep are you getting? What kind of food are you eating? What kind of interactions are you having with everyday people? You know, these kind of things. Um, your your lifestyle choices, your drug taking behavior, the, these sort of things, the way that you're living. It's really important and fundamental to realize that genetics and environment do intertwine with one another, do interact with one another. So it's really important to take care of the protective factors, the things that you can control. This is a really, really lengthy topic. I mean, I encourage listeners to possibly look into things like epigenetics, which is like when you have certain genes within you which are activated from environmental interaction, right? Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, you know, it's really important to take into account that you know, get get the help you need, but realize that the brain is so much more complex than that. Just because you maybe have, there's maybe might be a predisposition there, or someone in your family has had this, it doesn't mean that's going to be your destiny. But mm-hmm. it's a good idea to always have protective factors, whether you have a disposition mm-hmm. or not, because mental health can affect anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, can affect anyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I suppose, almost, Alia, if yeah. it's in your family yeah. history, at least you've got a mm-hmm. um, something a pointer. And just to be wary of it, it's like anything, I suppose that old saying, you know, prevention is better than cure. Um, so, you know, you as, you know, your, your job is a, me- a mental uh, health therapist. Now, what advice would you give, Alia, to our listeners out there uh, who are maybe struggling with mental health issues? I mean, what can they incorporate in their day-to-day life to help improve their quality of life? Um, because, you know, sometimes it's, I suppose that, uh, 
disposition of having a mental health issue, maybe you don't want to go seeking help. So how, mm. you know, how, how, you know, what, what's available out there? Yeah, and I think that's a really good point that you've just made about not wanting to seek health. There's a lot of shame mm-hmm. that surrounds uh, mental health uh, issues, even in today, in 2023. Well, one thing I would say is that, you know, within your your daily routine, you have to invest in yourself every single day. And what I mean by that is through your behaviors in your everyday life, through the routines that you put for yourself, through the things that you, you enjoy doing. So I know we talk with, there's a lot of talking about self-care, self-care, self-care. And self-care, yes, self-care is a part of it in terms of, I think a lot of people don't really know what it is. They think it's just a bubble bath or reading a book. But if you hate bubble (laughs) bath... Lots of candles. Right? Not candles, right? It's a fire risk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Carbon monoxide. No, but the thing is, is that, you know... uh, you have to be aware that that's not everyone's that's not everyone's thing mm-hmm. you know it's, it's it's doing what you enjoy and you like and investing in yourself what i mean is it can just be things like you know getting getting a proper thing to eat mm-hmm. you know it's, it's it's like that sort of thing Ta- actually taking a shower you know mm-hmm. it's so it's so difficult because when you're in the midst of a mental health thing you forget to take the, the fundamental needs mm-hmm. so your basic needs need to be taken care of Sleep, food, shelter, warmth, um, relationships, social relationships, these kind of things. And then from there, it's about kind of maintaining within yourself the not only the basic needs, but also knowing when to have downtime, knowing when, you know, it's getting your reserves are getting a little bit low and you're starting to feel a little bit more tired than usual or a bit more anxious than usual. And then you're like, okay, I need to take a step back. I need to do something that I want to do. So self-care is a huge priority in that respect. Mm-hmm. Fulfilling your basic needs is a really, really huge requirement. And I know it's something that some of us probably take for granted, but honestly, it can be really difficult when you're in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. Keeping a place clean around you, I think an organized um, environment can really, really put your mind at ease. Um, mm-hmm. Always very like unnerved by by clutter. And I know that if I've... If uh, I've I've been feeling sort of a bit more anxious, my house is an absolute tip, mm-hmm. and that's like that's a reality for a lot of people, you know. Mm. So it's it's different things like that. It's really about honestly, really taking care of yourself. People who don't treat you well and things like that in your relationships, it's important to to have boundaries there. And a lot of us don't learn about relationship boundaries. A lot of us don't learn about that it's okay to say no to a, to a night out if you really don't feel like it, if your reserves are really low. Because some of us, you know, want to please people and mm-hmm. things like that. There's a lot of factors that go into that. Yeah, it's important FOMO. to put boundaries, you know, into your relationship. Yeah, so what were you going to say? No, I said FOMO. It's fear of missing out. I know. Yeah, you know I've got FOMO. several family members, friends. They strive to kind of like get in on something or another. And sometimes I think, yeah, you didn't need to go there. Mm-hmm. You know, why? Mm-hmm. You know, why go like two hours drive for like half an hour and then come back mm-hmm. and then be stressed mm-hmm because of that four hour round trip mm. so yeah yeah those things happen no uh alia it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon thank you very much for joining us uh, on the drive time show uh, for having thank me you. and uh, best of luck with the rest of the show <laughs> thank you very much have a good day you know it was really interesting listening to uh, alia explaining the different uh things or you know suggestions things that we can mm-hmm. do to help our mental health and you know on all the points, it was uh, 
giving me that you know that reminders that Islam has given solutions to such things like mm-hmm. you know cleanliness, uh, yeah. basic personal hygiene as well as keeping your environment clean. Mm-hmm. Again, Islam half of the faith is is cleanliness. Mm-hmm. So if you have that, it can prevent so many issues. Not just physically, but also mentally, it mm-hmm. will it will affect you. Mm-hmm. Again, when we pray, you do the ablution, you clean mm-hmm. yourself, you make yourself fresh and ready to have that one-to-one, mm-hmm. you know, session. And with I think God. And you know, when you actually have uh, <coughs> trauma. Okay, we're not talking about genetic uh, dis- uh, disposition. Of to course mental, not. That's a. Right? Well, yeah. But say, for instance, uh, you know, you've suffered grief. Mm. You suffered trauma of some sorts. It shocks your normal like day-to-day uh, life really yeah. and when you actually cling to certain things which you know need to happen yeah. it gives you a sense of normality exactly. uh, it's something that you can like, cling to yeah um, I mean I've experienced grief in my life and you know one of the things I, I, I did straight off was to go to Jum'a Namaz and to uh, take part in congregational prayers yeah and the funeral I, prayer, prayer yeah. which is done there and, and the thing was that you know I felt Although I had grief, you know, I, I, I look back at it beyond that I could think I could bear. Yeah. But actually taking part in congregational prayer and just looking around, you know, knowing that everyone is in joint, well, is in unison, mm. uh, with only one thought in mind, that comforted me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just felt that that unity mm. through prayer, yeah. not just with that bond to your creator but that we are all doing it in unison yes I think um, you know recently in in my mosque as well there were uh, you know somebody who passed away Mm -hmm. it was a big shock to the family it was a big tragedy but uh, you know you you saw how 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 much of a difference it made that the community members you know sat down with them Mm -hmm. you know they were able to speak they were Mm -hmm. able to let out their feelings Mm -hmm. you know you hug uh, mm-hmm. Those you know who are affected, the family. Plus, you, you you know you hug the individual who's going through the grief, and it just helps so much with coping with it because grief eventually it's very very hard if you're grieving on your own alone, mm-hmm. and if you don't have a support a network beha- yeah. around you, then it's very difficult. Mm. Especially during COVID as well, yeah. where you where know is, yeah. uh, th- hundreds and thousands of deaths, and mm. uh, the fact that you you know a lot of people couldn't grieve with their close one uh, close. Yeah family members yeah. and they couldn't actually hug their close family mm. members you know this was um this was a very difficult experience yeah. for many people you, you just kind of like uh, opened a can of worms there because <laughs> i'm like thinking yeah we're going to discuss that in another issue right yeah <laughs> but anyway um we're actually joined by our last guest uh, of the day uh this is imam Khalid gonzalez who is uh currently posted in spain which is apparently 10 degrees warmer than the uk Lucky old Just him. 10 degrees. Just 10 degrees. Uh, As-salamu alaykum. Peace and blessings be upon you. Uh, Imam G- uh, Gonzalez, thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. As-salamu alaykum Peace and blessings be upon you. So, yeah, no, more than, more than uh, welcome. So, we're speaking about mental health issues. Now, to what extent do you, or do we as humans, have free will when theological, theologically, Muslims believe in preordainment of God's will? That's a deep one to start mm-hmm. off with. Yeah. So free will, mm-hmm. um, to clear, right? Uh, everyone has free will, right? right? There is. It's not a question of oh, you know, this was my destiny, mm-hmm. and it was written that I should be poor, so therefore I am poor. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work like that, because if we look first of all in the Quran, right, there's full of do's and don'ts, right? You ask me from a stomach point of view, so 
in the Quran, we have loads of do's and don'ts. There's our, there are around 700 commandments, right? And if there are so many commandments, why would there be any concept of free will? I mean, of course, God wouldn't tell you to do something if he knows that he's already written it down that you should not do it. Or that you should do something, and what's the point of telling you to do such and such thing, or give charity, pray, give the God, etc. Why would he tell you to do it? Why would he ordain us to do it in the Quran if he knows that all of this is predetermined? So that's one thing clear. Everyone has free will. And even from the story of Hazrat Yunus, the Prophet Yunus, his nation, they were ordained, or you can say they had been promised a punishment because they hadn't listened to the message which he brought. So he said to them, listen, if you guys don't listen to this message and you don't pray to God and you don't leave the, the vices and the bad things you're doing, eventually you'll be punished. Mm-hmm. And so he left. He left because he had given his message. And after many days of preaching and many, maybe even years, he left. Mm-hmm. And eventually he found out that the, around 100,000 inhabitants of that, of that uh, nation, they survived. Why? Because they repented. Mm-hmm. They repented and they actually listened to him. And that's also a nice little hope of sign. Uh, sorry, hope of sign. A sign of hope for those who, mm-hmm. who always ask, "Oh, why is it always bad? Why is it always the people who mm-hmm. are bad? Why do they ever change?" Well, there's, there's a nice little story there that everyone did change and they did repent, and their nation was indeed saved. Mm-hmm. And of course, then we have reward and punishment. So the same way we have do's and don'ts in the Quran, we also have rewards and punishment. God wouldn't tell us, "Hey, I'll give you this reward. I'll give you this kind of mansion in heaven." This is the kind of pleasure you'll feel in your namaz. You'll have this and this and this if you do such and such things. Because then God wouldn't be a just good, right? Mm-hmm. Because then, of course, some people are rich. And if God has written it down before they're even born that they will be rich, then isn't, isn't that unfair? Of course, there are some things which we can't change. There are some things which you can't change. For example, your ethnicity. Mm-hmm. These things are predetermined, of course. You can't change your ethnicity. You were born that way, right? You're born as a Spanish person, Indian person, Pakistani, whoever, right? But the rest is is essentially your life, your journey mm-hmm. in life. Okay. The things which you have a say in, mm-hmm. because you that's have the a point of to change. Exactly. You mm-hmm. have a, this is the life of the test. Mm-hmm. And then God says, well, if you do good, I will reward you. Mm-hmm. So, so just to build on this, uh, as we're sticking to the theme of uh, mental, mental health, nature and nurture, um, what Islamic advice and teachings are available for people who are predisposed with certain genetic abnormalities affecting their mental health and they feel they cannot do much about it since it's out of their hands? Right. So the the best advice we can give them is, for example, the Prophet Islam. He says, he says, no, sorry, the, the Holy Prophet He was very much opposed to pessimism. And the reason I say this is, yes, I've heard a lot of people and I've, I was listening to the show right now and I think everyone gave good advice and Islam offers the same advice that you should always go to people for help, etc., etc. Now, I don't say the opposite, but in the Quran, um, which is about to match the words of the Quran, which match um, and relate to what the words of the Holy Prophet is in the Quran, the Prophet Jacob, when his son Yusuf was taken away from him, he said, that surely I only complain of my sorrow and grief to Allah. And then if you put that alongside the words of the Holy Prophet وسلم, which is that he was opposed to pessimism and he said that we should always be um, optimistic and positive, then what that does is it enables you to reinforce your mental strength. Going to people is very important. We always need to seek advice from, from, from people, friends and family. At the same time, because Islam always teaches balance, 
and we should also try our best to complain of our sorrows and grief to God. <coughs> Praying, just mm. like you were mentioning earlier on. Praying is the most important thing. And then, obviously, the people who are around you, they can support you. But yeah. nowadays, I, I've seen that a lot of people, they might Google a, a couple of symptoms and say, oh, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this disease, I've got this, um, I've got this mental health problem. I've got, I've, obviously, there's someone in my family as well who, who is suffering from mental health issues, and it can get really severe, you know? Mm. Things like schizophrenia can get really, really severe. And, of course, Islam says that, you know, the Holy Prophet says that there is no disease in this earth that God has made for which there is no cure. And I haven't lost hope that even that person can be cured, mm. because Allah Ta'ala has said it, has said it. So I think it's very much about, you know, people say willpower, you know, mental strength, fortitude, hope. These are the, the factors which really help us keep on going, you know, because there are many people who have uh, bodily disabilities, you know, they've won 55 Olympic medals. There's a, there was a very famous swimmer. And there, there are many runners who, who've, you know, her name was Trisha, Trisha uh, Zorn, who won 55 mm. medals, 41 with her gold. Oscar Pistorius, six medals, six mm. gold medals as a runner. He doesn't have legs. Mm. So, the Paralympians can do it. And people, you know, the Paralympians can do it. They are physically disabled, right? But they are, it's, it's in those, they say there's a saying, when we hit our lowest point, we are open to the greatest change. Mm. People ask why is there something that's more down to, I think, society as well. You know, if you belong to a society which gives you the um, opportunity um, for no, no matter what physical stage you are yeah. as well, you still have a chance to somehow participate and compete at your level and still be a champion in this world. So that's, you know, that's a beauty Man. of advanced society, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very important, you said something very important there. You said opportunity. Yeah. I've seen many people... Because I wish for the people, for the Muslims and everyone around, to try and be as strong as possible, right? Yeah. And you mentioned the word opportunity. And I feel like I've seen many people complain about not having opportunity or not having the appropriate, the appropriate society or, or opportunities around them to be able to advance. Yeah. But the reality is, you yourself, you are the environment. Yeah. You know, Of course, in the Quran it says, be with the right people. And this helps, has a massive effect. But if someone says, you know, he goes for prayer, and he says, well, I don't like the guy's Dalawas, I don't like the way he's reciting the Quran, I don't, it doesn't really touch my heart. But how much are you focusing yourself on your prayer? It's you who makes the change. People who have made such, have such contrasted lives, they have started from nothing and achieved so much. Mm -hmm. It is usually those people who have achieved the most because they didn't depend on anyone. Yeah. They depended on God, their hope, their faith, and their, what they've been given. Everyone has the capacity to overcome all the difficulties in life. Thank you very much, uh, Imam Khalid Gonzalez, uh, joining us from uh, Spain. Some excellent points that you have touched upon. Zakla, uh, Allah bless you. Thank you for your time. You're welcome so much. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Waikstam. 0208 uh, I think uh, just. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the program so very very interesting points um, th there are simple things that people can also do to look after their mental health such mm -hmm. as you know physical exercise mm -hmm. doesn't have to be something you know you're running a 5k or whatever you can also just go for a walk you know get some fresh air um, we talked about meditation we talked about prayers that we have that advantage in Islam that you have a daily five times prayers that can help you but then again as we said in the beginning as well or 
throughout the program that uh, you know make sure that you seek medical uh, professional mm. help as well mm. don't over diagnose yourself mm. you know and i think at the end of the day or you know coming towards the uh, end of the show you know it was that de- debate nature versus nurture and mm. I, i think you know with our guests it's uh, revealed that no one particular whether it's nature or nurture your environment or genetic disposition um is the winner there yeah. uh, in terms of mental health issues it's they are both intertwined and it's just really to take care of oneself but with that we've come to the end of the uh, show or we're coming to the end of the show a big thank you to my co-host safia khan and rana rahman uh, a big thank you to our producers for our shows today faiza mirza and tareem mazamil and a, a big thank you also to our backroom staff habib Uh, with that um we're coming up to the six o'clock news thank you it's been monday's edition of the drive time show